Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to start tonight in Revelation chapter 12. Kind of a strange place to start on a healing service or healing school. But I've got something that the Lord dropped in my heart and, and um, um, that I want to share with you for the purpose of tweaking your faith, tweaking your believing. In Revelation chapter 12, it says that um, we're going to start with verse 7 and, and pull a little bit out of context, but you'll, I think you'll see uh, that, uh, that we're given enough context for the story to be applicable. It says, And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Let me ask you a question. Many times, or most of the time, I think we look at the book of Revelation as being things to come, and and, uh, much of it is talking about uh, what's going to happen during the tribulation period and, and stuff like that. But when is this talking about? Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 came back and said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us under your, in your name. Jesus said, I beheld Satan uh, fall from heaven as lightning. Well, isn't that talking about the same thing? Apparently, it was before the Garden of Eden account where Adam and Eve were placed in, the, in, the, uh, in what we call the creation story. It's really the recreation story. But apparently, it was before then because Satan was already in the earth. So I want you to notice something. I want you to notice it's talking about something that's already happened. It's talking about the war that happened in heaven where, where a third of the angels went with uh, Satan, fought against God, and they prevailed not, and they were cast out into the earth. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night. Now, folks, I want you to notice something. Notice it says um, in verse 8. Let me read again in verse 8. It said, they prevailed not in the war. Satan and his angels prevailed not against Michael and the angels of God. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. Do you see that phrase? Well, then let me ask you a question. Where does the devil accuse the brethren day and night before God. See, it seems to me from things I've heard people say, and I know that I used to think this way myself, it seems that many Christians, maybe most Christians, think that the devil appears before God and they take scriptures like this and another scripture in Job where it talks about the sons of God presented themselves before God and the devil was there and complained about Job and all that kind of stuff. And people seem to have the idea that heaven has an open door to the devil to come in and accuse you, accuse, bring accusation against you before the heavenly father. But the Bible says that's not the case. So then where does the devil get into the presence of God? Many translations say instead of before God, it talks about the, in the presence of God. Where is the devil, the accuser of the brethren, Day and night in your mind. Where is the presence of God in your spirit? So for the devil to bring accusation against you as being the temple of the Holy Ghost or the presence of God, that's the fulfillment of this scripture. Notice it goes on to say, In verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Now, who's it talking about overcame him? It can't be talking about Michael and the angels of God because they've already won the war in heaven, and that's the reason Satan was cast down to the earth. So who is it that overcomes him? And what is him, meaning the devil, and what is it they're overcoming? The daily accusations. It seems to me, in the experience that I have, I've been pastoring the church for 30-something years now, 30, it'll be 31 in January, 
And you learn a little bit after 30 years just by accident, if nothing else, you know. But it seems to me that one of the greatest hindrances, not certainly not the most prominent hindrance to people receiving their healing, that's a lack of conviction that it's the will of God. People don't know for sure that it's God's will to heal them. But right on the heels of that, maybe even attached to it, is the idea that they're not worthy, that people are not worthy. The individual is not worthy to receive their healing. And that may be the reason, and in many cases, uh, in my experience, it is the reason why people aren't convinced that it's the will of God to heal them, not because Jesus didn't pay for it on the cross, not because Jesus didn't take sickness and disease upon himself when he made the ultimate sacrifice of offering his life, but because of their own misdeeds, their own sins, and their own wrongdoings. Well, why is that such a big deal with us? Because we're faced with it day after day after day after day after day. Now, I want to show you some things about Jesus' ministry. Turn back with me. Let's start in Luke. uh, Where do we want to start? Let's start in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Beginning in verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him, speaking of Jesus, wanted Jesus to come eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. I want you to notice the Pharisees are the religious leaders. Most of them didn't believe in Jesus, but there were a few of them that did. We don't know about this guy. We don't know if he did or didn't. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw that saw what happened, he spoke, spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Now, most commentaries, I don't know if there's any way to prove this or not, one way or the other. Uh, if there is, I'm not aware of it. But the, the fact that it mentions that she's a sinner and the way that it mentions she's a sinner, it implies that she's a prostitute. It implies that her sin is so great that everybody knows about it. And that's the, the, uh, the point that's called into question by the Pharisee. He doesn't speak it out. He just says it within himself. If Jesus was a real prophet, he'd know who this woman was. Well, in fact, Jesus did know who this woman was. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And they... When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto you, by the way, all of those things are signs of disrespect. The Pharisee would certainly understand the customs of the day, or the customs according to the law of Moses, not just the day, but in the Old Covenant. And so the fact that he didn't do these things showed that perhaps he had an ulterior motive in asking Jesus there because he's not, he's not uh, treating him with respect. Jesus goes on to say, Wherefore I say unto thee, verse 47, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Jesus says unto the woman, Jesus has already identified that the woman's sins are many. But he says unto her, thy sins are forgiven. That creates a problem for the Pharisees. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? 
And he said unto the woman, thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Now let me ask you a question. And here's the point of the service this evening. Were the woman's sins sufficient to keep Jesus from showing forth the greatest amount of goodness that he could toward her? If she had needed healing, would we expect that he would have healed her? But her sins were many. Not only were her sins many, her sins were public. That's a big problem. At least most of our sins are private. Hopefully all of them. At least that's the way we want them to be, right? I want you to notice that the condition of this woman's or her experience, let me say it this way, the the experience that this, this woman had with sin was not sufficient to keep Jesus from giving her the best that he could give her. Let's look at another verse. Look with me over to uh, Matthew chapter 9. I'll start reading in verse 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. He's calling him to be one of his apostles or disciples. He would become an apostle. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans, the publicans are the tax collectors. They were the most hated people of the day because most of them were crooked. Most of them stole money. And it was a legal, uh, a legal way in the Roman system of government. It was a legal way for the, for the uh, tax collectors to steal. There was a certain amount of money that was required of every person, every um, individual in the land to go to the Roman government. But anything over and above that the tax collectors could get from them was theirs to keep. And so the tax collectors, the publicans, were known as the the richest people of the land. But the, the source of their income was stealing from the people. Or at least it was considered to be stealing. I think I would have agreed with them if I was one of the ones that was having to pay. So it says, And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners, notice those two words are used in conjunction with one another. They were considered to be one and the same. Many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But I go, and you learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am come to call I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want you to notice that in both of these instances, both of these cases, you've got Jesus who willingly accepts those who are known for their sins. And he doesn't withhold any blessing for them or unto them. Second thing I want you to see is that the Pharisees, which always represents a religious thought or a religious group, are the ones that are calling the sins of other people into question. I'll even go so far as to say this. I could save it till the end, but I might forget to say it. So I'll go so far as to say this. Any accusation you hold against yourself is a religious attitude. I'll prove it to you from Scripture. Look with me over to Luke chapter 19. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was chief among the publicans. Now, there's different ways you can look at that. That means he was uh, a leader or a head of one of the, the organization of the tax collectors. But it could also mean chief among the sinners, at least in the eyes of the people. He was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. I'm sure that sit real well with the people. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it all, when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be the guest with a man that is a sinner. Notice the religious attitude again. The religious attitude is, if you've sinned, you don't deserve anything. Does that sound familiar? That's the accusation the devil makes against us. Day after day after day. In the presence of the Lord. Because he's living in our hearts. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Zacchaeus seems to be saying, what everybody thinks about me is not true. And Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. Now, please notice that phrase. He's saying salvation is come to his house. What Jesus came to provide for mankind to set them free from the power of the devil is available to this man. Not because he's given his good to the poor. Not because he doesn't cheat people in his tax collecting. But because he's a son of Abraham. I want you to notice Jesus does not address his sin. This day is salvation. Come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man is coming to seek and to save that which was lost. Turn with me now to another Passage of scripture. Let's look at Luke chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1 it says. Now when he had ended all of his sayings in the audience of the people. He entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him. I I read that too quickly. And a a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy. These are the religious leaders, the leaders of the synagogue, saying the centurion is worthy for whom he should do this. For, here's why they think he's worthy, he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. He's a big giver to the church. So Jesus, you ought to do something good for him. Now remember the Old Testament, the Old Covenant uh, blessing of Abraham is I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. So that's why they're saying that he's worthy of Jesus' help. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou should enter into my roof. Wherefore, neither I thought of myself, thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say a word and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Now, a couple of things that are interesting to look at here. First of all, the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, thought that the man was worthy because of his giving. Does giving make you worthy? Notice that the attitude of the religious leaders, the recipients of the big gifts, was different than the man's attitude of himself. This is instructive to me because so often we look at people and we think, oh, they live a good life. They live a holy life. We can see from their life that, that, uh, that they just live right. Man, I wish I could aspire to that kind of lifestyle. But that had nothing to do, no bearing whatsoever, with what the man thought of himself. He didn't even consider himself worthy to come talk to Jesus in person. So he sent people to talk to him for him or on his behalf. He didn't consider himself worthy enough for Jesus to even come to his house. But he does understand authority. 
And Jesus marvels at his great faith, according to Matthew's account of this story. Folks, everybody has something to deal with that the devil tries to hound them about. Everybody. Jesus healed his servant by speaking the word. We won't take time to go over to John chapter 4, but you remember the story of the woman at the well of Samaria. Jesus, whether, we, whether Jesus knew that she was coming or not, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say so. It's hard for me to assume that he would know since the Bible didn't tell us ahead of time or include that as part of the story. But we do know that God knew, even if Jesus didn't. Now, some people would say, well, Jesus was the son of God, so of course he knew. Well, that would have to be part of the glory that Jesus emptied himself of to come to the earth and be like a man. You don't know everything that's going to happen ahead of time, do you? There are some times that the Holy Ghost can and does show us things. But again, the Bible doesn't tell us that that was the case here. So a woman shows up. She's a Samaritan. The Jews didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus said, give me something to drink. She's shocked that he would even address her. Because the Samaritans were considered to be dogs or sinners by the Jews. Jesus talks to her about living water. He talks to her about water that springs up into everlasting life. She says, give me this water. She's thinking naturally. She's thinking if he gives me the kind of water that I don't have to draw anymore, that I won't have to keep coming back to this well like I do every day. Jesus says, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you're right about that. He said, you've had five husbands or four husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. Folks, can we conclude Without criticism or judgment, she's got a lot of things that the devil would have opportunity to to beat her up about when it comes to her marriages and divorces and remarriages and so forth. Yet Jesus talks to her about salvation. He informs her before anybody else in the Samaritan, the, the region of Samaria, about the salvation that's available from the Lord. He doesn't let her marital status or her marital condition or history stop him from showing her his best. Well, then why would God stop from showing you or refuse or withhold from showing you his best? Look with me now to, uh, well, let's see where I want to go next. Look with me over to Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul's talking about the ministry of reconciliation, what Jesus has done for us. I won't read the whole passage, but I will read a few verses here. Beginning in verse fourteen. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. Now, this would be real easy for us to read over real quick and, and assume that you get the meaning from this. But, folks, I want to stop here long enough for you to get this. When he's talking about if Jesus died for everybody, here's what Paul is, is saying. This is what we judge. Now, this is interesting to me because Paul is saying, here's what I've concluded. I think a lot of people put their minds on pause when it comes to the Bible. They take their minds off of pause when it comes to finding reasons why something doesn't belong to them. But when it comes to the scripture that talks about what does belong to them, they don't think about it and they don't reason it out and they don't understand correctly. Paul is doing just the opposite. Paul is saying, here's what I've concluded about this. I know that Jesus died for everybody. Well, what does that mean? He's saying that has to mean that everybody died with him. Since he died for us all, then we're all dead. Dead to what? Certainly not dead to God. Dead to sin. Dead to a sinful nature. Dead to the condemnation of sin. Now, why is that? Because Jesus died for everybody. Not because we've done something to make up for our wrongdoings. But because Jesus died for everybody. That's what he's concluding. If you study Paul's doctrine of reconciliation, 
and his understanding of righteousness, you'll find out that this is the basis for everything that he has to say. He talks about a lot of it in the upcoming verses. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Say this after me. I'm dead. Jesus died for me, so I'm dead too. Now, when Jesus died for us, what did he die to? He died into sin. He died to the sinful nature that Paul is going to tell us that was laid upon Jesus, that he became sin. He died under those things. What does that mean? That means he was separated from God. It literally destroyed him. That doesn't mean a ceasing to exist. It means it destroyed his relationship with God. He took on the full brunt of the judgment of God upon sin. He died the sinner's death. But he was born again. Thank God the life of God came back in him and caused him to be born again. Now, is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, apologizing to the Father for all the sin that was laid upon him? She's saying, you know, Lord, when, when the sin was laid on me, I, I, I could just feel how bad it was. When adultery was laid on me, it was kind of like, oh, no, not that. When homosexuality was laid on me, it was kind of like, oh, no, not that. Of course not. Why? Because he was born again from the dead. The Bible says he was the first one, the first begotten, the first one born again from the dead. So what does that mean? That means there's no trace of death in him or on him or associated to him or attached to him in any way whatsoever. And that's what Paul is saying about you. This notion that so much of the church has is we're just sinners saved by grace. No, you were sinners and you were, and, and then were, you were saved by grace so that there's no trace, there's no hint of sin attached to you whatsoever. That's what Paul's saying he's concluded. You'd do well to conclude the same thing. This we judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And he that died for all, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, not hence, yet now henceforth we know him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Do you realize that Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost when he says, We know no man, therefore, after the flesh? Do you know what that means? That means any sin that you sin in the flesh, God doesn't know you according to that. Now, what is it that the devil accuses you of day and night, if not sins of the flesh? He wants to see you. He wants you to see you according to the flesh. Paul's saying that's not how we operate. Paul's saying because Jesus died for us all, we're all dead in him. So there is no knowledge of one another after the flesh. Now, when you start operating that way in practice, that's when the love of God shows forth from your life. When you look at people not as, well, I wonder what they've done, or trying to spread the news about what somebody's done that you find out about, but realize instead, even if they did fail, even if they did sin, they're in Christ Jesus, so God doesn't see them as sinners. So I'm not either. That's when the love of God becomes manifest in your life. In the kind of measure that Jesus talked about. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Notice that Paul attaches this to the things that he said before. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. New creature from what? From whatever sins of the flesh that he was experiencing. Whatever experience with sin he had. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that's talking about before he was saved, is it? Is not knowing any man after the flesh talking about just before we were saved? Paul says, therefore, we know no man after the flesh. He didn't say we didn't, we once didn't know them after the flesh or we didn't know them after the flesh concerning their sins before they got saved. He's talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about a present tense attitude. 
Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. What old things do you think he's talking about? Sins of the flesh. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God who has reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now notice that phrase in verse 19, not imputing the trespasses unto them. Jesus went to the cross to die for us, to take sin upon himself, not to judge us for sin. The Bible says he doesn't even count our sins against us. Now if that's what the Bible says Jesus did for the world, how much more would that be the case for those that are part of God's family? Is this making any sense to you at all? To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The word reconciliation literally means exchange. The word of the ministry of reconciliation that the Bible says that we have is the good news of the exchange that was made. So much of the church world has the idea that it's all about repentance. Well, thank God repentance is important. But God's not imputing your trespasses against you. He doesn't want you to feel sorry about it for days on end so that then you start feeling better about yourself. Because there was an exchange made. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. For he has made him, God has made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made. Everybody say made. Made the righteousness of God in him. Now if you made the righteousness of God in him, you can't be unmade. That relationship that came about as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, the exchange that was made, Jesus took your sin upon himself. He was made to be sin so that you could be made as an exchange so that you could be made the righteousness of God in him. You can't be unmade. Now you can break fellowship. But there's a big difference between relationship and fellowship. The marriage relationship is a good example of that. The Bible says our relationship with God is like a marriage. What does that mean? We're married to one another. Husbands and wives are married to each other because of a legal relationship that's entered into. A marriage covenant that's entered into. Now that doesn't mean husbands and wives have to get along. But they're going to be married until that marriage relationship, that marriage covenant is broken Legally. Now some marriages have rich fellowship as a byproduct of the relationship and some marriages do not. Well, your Christian life can be the same way. You can have rich fellowship with the Lord because you've been made his righteousness by the work of Jesus. Or you can continue in sin and that sin will break fellowship. It'll keep you at arm's length from the Lord, or at least feeling like you're at arm's length from the Lord. But that's your choice. But folks, one sin does not break fellowship if your heart's right. Most people I know that are sincere before God are sorry for the things that they do wrong. And so they ask God to forgive them. And he does. 1 John 1, 9 says, God, when we confess our sins before him... He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say to make us righteous again, but to cleanse us from unrighteous actions. So Paul is saying very simply, well, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Let me prove it to you from other scriptures as well. Romans chapter 8, here's Paul's doctrine of righteousness. 
Verse 1, there is therefore now, everybody say now. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now the last part of verse 1, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, is not in the original transcripts. It is in the original transcripts in verse 4. And the only explanation that I can come up with, you judge this for yourself, but the only explanation I can give you or surmise why the translators added it from verse 4 into verse 1 is that it was too much for them to accept. Because verse 1, if you take that phrase out, verse 1 just simply reads in the original transcripts, this is the way it reads, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Period. But how could Paul write this to people that he knows are sin or are involved in sin? I started to say sinners, but I don't want to use that term. People that fail and miss it, people that make mistakes, sometimes accidentally, sometimes on purpose. Paul is writing to people that struggle to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, just like we do. The translators must have thought that Paul intended for the phrase in verse 4 to be a part of verse 1 because condemnation would certainly be attached to those who miss it and and fail and and, uh, fall into sin, wouldn't it? Well, that's what we think. But that's not what God said. God said... By the Holy Ghost through the Apostle Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. If there is no condemnation, well, let me finish with verse 2 and I'll make my comments. For, here's the reason why. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. How could there be no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus? Because Jesus made an exchange. He made you his righteousness And he took upon your sin and died for it. So he's very simply saying that as new creatures, Jesus died for all of us. Therefore, we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Those new creatures in Christ Jesus are sinless creatures. Even if you're struggling with sin, even if you fall into sin over and over and over again, you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are in God's sight and in reality... Maybe not in practice in your own life, your earthly life. But you are in reality the righteousness of God in Christ. The same righteous relationship with God the Father that Jesus has himself. That's hard for us to accept. And the devil takes advantage of that. The devil knows that many of us have a hard time accepting that. So he brings accusation against us. He points out every little mistake we made. Sometimes it's mistakes that we made 10 and 12 years ago or longer. Tries to hold us in bondage when the Bible says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which is the very thing that caused you to be made the righteousness of God and caused you to become a new creature in Christ, has already set you free from every one of those things. Look with me over to uh, Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 beginning in verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. And was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her he called her to him and said unto her. Woman. Thou art loose from thine infirmity because you've lived a holy life. Woman, God sees how you've struggled against sin and lived righteously. So I want to set you free from this infirmity. Do you notice that the Bible doesn't tell us anything about her life? Well, that says to me that we have to assume that she's normal. That says to me that she's living a normal kind of life in the sense that she's failing in some some areas, doing good in other areas. 
She's in the synagogue, so she must have some kind of heart or at least an interest in God. But Jesus does not single her out and say, the Holy Ghost reveals to me that you're believing and holding fast to the promise of the Messiah and God wants to honor your faith. No mention made of that whatsoever. He just sees a woman in need in the synagogue and says, woman, you are loose from your infirmities. How do we know she deserves it? Isn't that the first question the devil would ask you? What makes you think you would deserve it? Yeah, Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. And with his stripes you're healed. Certainly that belongs to everybody as a part of the salvation work of Jesus on the cross. But you've disqualified yourself because of mistakes you've made in your life. You know how you struggle in this area of your life or that area of your life or whatever the case might be. Isn't the devil always talking to us or regularly talking to us about being disqualified from the promises and the blessings of God? He sure does me. Does he treat me different than he does you? Just Is this just a personal issue for me? Now, the Bible tells us that the devil operates the same way toward all of us. So I know how he deals with you because I know how he deals with me. Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Jesus did not interview her. He did not ask her, do you believe in the Messiah? He did not ask her, are you living according to the law of Moses? No question and answer session whatsoever. Now, if all those things were true of her and Jesus knew of those things and that was the reason why he healed her and the Bible doesn't tell us, then it's defrauding us. It's letting us believe a lie. The fact that the Bible doesn't say anything about it tells me that it was a non-issue. So he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. It's interesting to me that most of the people in the New Testament and Jesus' ministry glorified God after they got healed rather than while they were sick. Yet the modern-day church wants to tell you to, to endure your sickness and be patient and glorify God in the middle of it. That's not the Bible pattern. So she glorifies God when she's healed, and the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, and them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now, folks, get the picture here. The woman has just been healed. She's standing right there, and then the ruler of the synagogue says, This isn't right. I'm guessing the woman's thinking, What have I been coming here for? You're an idiot. This is the best possible thing that could have happened. Who are you to say this isn't right? It happened on the wrong day. The Lord then answered him and said, now we see what God's attitude is toward that. The Lord then answered him and said, thou hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering, which is, by the way, contrary to the law of Moses, but it would cost them financially if they didn't. So they were willing to break the law of Moses for their own personal gain, financial gain. Got to keep everything living. Can't quit watering the animals that are going to make you money during the week because it's the Sabbath day. So there are reasons that they're willing to break the Sabbath day rules. Healing's just not one of them. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, here's Jesus' attitude, here's why Jesus did what he did. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And when he had said these things, all all of his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus gives two reasons for this woman being healed, for the the reasons for why he took the action that he did and healed her on the Sabbath day. And reason number one is she's a daughter of Abraham. Reason number two was Satan was the one that had bound her up for 18 years. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now finally turn with me over to Galatians chapter 3. 
verse 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. For this purpose, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus took upon himself a curse, was made sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God, which is identified in Scripture as being the blessing of Abraham coming upon the Gentiles. Verse 29 of Galatians chapter 3 goes further and says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, folks, Jesus healed the woman with the infirmity that was bowed together in Luke chapter 13 because she was a daughter of Abraham and because Satan is the author of sickness. Well, Satan's still the author of sickness. So whatever you and I are attacked with, Satan is the author and the originator of it. So that still applies. And if you're Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, we know that promise includes healing for the physical body because Jesus in Luke chapter 13 that we just read healed the woman because she was a daughter of Abraham. Why would he do less now under the new covenant which is established upon better promises than the old covenant that Jesus was operating in at the time of Luke chapter 13? Why would he do more under Luke chapter 13 than he would do now when we have a better covenant, a better relationship with God? She was just a Jew. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. She was a part of the nation of Israel, which was identified in the Old Testament as servants of God. You're a son or a daughter of God. Why would Jesus do less now than he did for her? And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Whatever the devil's telling you, whatever reasons he gives... As justification in his thinking, trying to get you to agree that the blessing of Abraham or the blessing of healing doesn't belong to you, that you've disqualified yourself in some way from any and everything that Jesus did for us is a lie. Let's all stand together. Let's make a confession. Say these things after me. Jesus was made sin for me. So that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am righteous in the sight of God now. I'm not going to become righteous someday. I've been made righteous already. Because of that, I am an heir of everything that Jesus purchased. Everything that belonged to Abraham's covenant. I am an heir. A rightful heir. A worthy heir. Of the healing power of God. Satan. I call you to record. Before heaven and earth. This day. I am the righteousness of God. In Christ Jesus. I will no longer. Hear and accept your accusation against me because God has made me righteous through the precious blood of Jesus. Since God has given his best, his only son Jesus, to die for me, there is nothing, no blessing that he will withhold from me. All the blessings of Abraham are mine. I am healed by the stripes of Jesus. And the healing power of God raises me up. Prosperity is mine. Jesus has made me rich. Because he took upon himself my poverty. The peace of God is mine. Every blessing of God. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is mine now it's not going to be mine someday it's mine now 
Because I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Satan, take your hands off my body. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Now the Bible says in, John, in James chapter 5 verse 16, the last part of the verse, it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The Amplified Version says of that, the last part of the verse, instead of availing much, it says makes tremendous power available. When you pray effectively, and that's what we just did, most people don't consider something like that a prayer, but a confession according to the word of God is a prayer. It's a statement or a declaration of faith. When you pray and make statements and declarations like we just did, it makes the power of God available to accomplish anything and everything you need in your life. It makes the healing power of God available to cause you to be cured and healed from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. You are that righteous man whose prayer avails much. You are that righteous one to whom all the blessings of God belong. You are that righteous one, not somebody else that you think of, maybe some minister somewhere or some holy person that you think of as righteous, you're the righteous one that God will hear and answer every time because you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what being a new creation in Christ Jesus means. It means you've been made a righteous man or a woman. Folks, this is not just some theory. This is reality. This is truth. You may not feel righteous, You may not see yourself as righteous. That you need to change. You need to start seeing yourself the way God sees you. He sees you as an heir of everything that Jesus purchased. He sees you as a rightful heir of the power of God to do the same work on the earth that Jesus did. Not only that you walk in victory and you live in divine health, but so that you can transmit that power to other people to set them free too. That's who you've been made. You can't unmake yourself. God made you that when you made Jesus the Lord of your life. And the accusations of the devil can't unmake that either. Amen? Say it again. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The greater one lives in me. God is my Father. There is no good thing that he will withhold from me. Amen. Amen. You start saying that to yourself every day and your life will change. You'll start seeing it for reality, as reality, as the reality that it is. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.